kneel before Zod. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Enter the Ninja, released October 2nd, 1981. It was written by Dick Desmond, based on his own screen story, which is in turn based on a story by Mike Stone, with uncredited work from Menachem Golan and Stephen K. Hayes, directed by Menachem Golan and released by the Canon Group. I was really hoping you were going to say based on his real-life experiences. Yes, <laughs> true story. I mean, part of it is kind of based on a true story, but yeah. we'll get to that. Mike Stone was a world champion martial artist and sparring partner of Bruce Lee's. He developed a story on his own called Dance of Death that dealt with ninjas. He brought the pitch to Canon, suggesting himself in the lead, and Tadashi Yamashita, who's played the villain of our previous ninja piece, The Octagon, to play the black ninja in this film. Together... The Octagon and this film were the first Western titles to introduce the word ninja to American audiences, and ninja movies immediately exploded in popularity. I, well, d- I do hate, though, that in order to have a Western audience care about it, our main protagonist of these movies has to be a white dude that right. has adopted the ways. Mm-hmm. Correct. Uh, and while I will say this movie definitely uses the word ninja, uh, Octagon only uses the word ninja. <laughs> but it echoes, so you have to count it three times every time it gets set. I mean, this this movie took it so far as our white guy is literally wearing white the whole time. It's weird how many Anglo people there are living in the Philippines to play major characters in this story. Because, like, the villain and his sidekick and his sidekick sidekick are all white guys from Germany and America and Britain. And it's like, why can't these just be Filipino people in the Philippines? Yeah. I don't understand why they all have to be white guys. New canon bosses Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus were quick to approve the script with Stone in the lead, and as director, Boaz Davidson, director of recent canon minisode, Seed of Innocence. Boaz started casting from the regular canon stable for smaller parts, but was replaced at some point with canon's New Year's Evil director, Emmett Alston. At the same time, they had just greenlit a Chuck Bronson Death Wish sequel, and Menachem Golan had plans to direct it himself. Apparently, Bronson was not keen on having Golan direct the sequel and threatened to walk, at which point Mechanic and Death Wish 1 director Michael Winner was brought back for the sequel, and Golan left to micromanage Dance of Death, which had since been retitled Enter the Ninja, to profit from the popularity of Bruce Lee vehicle Enter the Dragon. After a few days, Golan grew bored with the dailies and fired Alston off the project to take over directing himself. When more filming didn't satisfy him, he made the, by all accounts, correct decision to fire Mike Stone, who had never acted before, off his own movie and replace the lead actor. Amusingly, fired director and star Emmett Alston and Mike Stone later reunited for a different ninja film called Tiger Shark, which is apparently terrible. (laughs) Not surprised. (laughs) Golan drove out to a film festival near the set in Manila, the Philippines, and found Italian actor Franco Nero, who Cannon had a three-picture deal with, and asked him to replace the lead in their film. To sweeten the deal, Stone was kept on to perform all of Nero's stunts and to choreograph everything. Not only didn't Nero have to fight, but because his character is written as a Texan, 
he is completely dubbed over since he couldn't manage a Texan accent. Insanely, though, neither can actor Mark Smith, who they paid to dub him in a Texan <laughs> accent. I feel like literally every character in this movie was dubbed over. By probably the same actor. <laughs> but this guy's speaking with, uh, it's clearly an American accent, but yeah. there's no hint of Texas to it. By some reports, Enter the Ninja cost in the neighborhood of $2 million, and according to Wikipedia, made $15 million back. So, of course, Golan and Globus immediately greenlit a sequel, Revenge of the Ninja, and later, Ninja 3 The Domination. Sequel is a strong word, though, because none of the three films connects with each other, and this film's antagonist actor, Sho Kashugi, is the only cast member to appear in more than one of the films, although as a completely new character in all three installments. I would have called it Enter and Enter Again. Yeah. <laughs> Exit the Ninja? Entering. Exit the Ninja, yeah. That's the last one. <laughs> Canon followed the Ninja Trilogy with the unrelated American Ninja Pentology, starring Michael Dudikoff. The film opens with a ninja in all black showing off his nunchuck and katana skills against a black background under the opening credits. Now, nunchucks are not ninja weapons, but they're something that Bruce Lee used a lot in his kung fu movies, and they were like, you gotta have some nunchucks in here, and they're like, that's not ninja. Yeah. Yeah. And he was like, I don't care. Put it in. But also, I feel like all that nunchucks are is like... Watch how fast I could spin this around and not hit myself in the balls. Yes. <laughs> A fellow chucker, eh? <laughs> this is Shokashugi here, who plays the Black Ninja for the rest of the film. The title, Enter the Ninja, fills frame. The ninja continues demonstrating prowess in more weapons, hooks on strings, bow and arrow, blow dart, but suddenly a ninja dressed in all white jump kicks into frame and knocks out the Black Ninja with a wildly missed slow motion kick to the face. <laughs> We cut to a cliff overlooking the ocean and the white and black ninjas face off beside what looks like a perilous drop. Rather than engage here, the white ninja sneaks away. <laughs> we see him running <laughs> through the wilderness pursued by the black ninja and a small troop of red ninjas who take his orders. Okay, so I feel like ninjas traditionally wear black because they're supposed to be like stealthy at night and, right. and sneaky. So they don't operate midday. Midday. And the bright red seems like an odd choice in a forest setting. Unless mm-hmm. your opponent is specifically colorblind, it seems like a weird option to be sneaky. Now, some ninja all- costumes do call for like a hint of red to them, which is supposed to disguise blood loss. But I don't know why you want to disguise blood loss mm-hmm. or how that helps. I was just thinking about the, the colorblind target. Is like, oh, man, there's all these gray hooded ninjas in this gray forest. <laughs> <laughs> The ninjas follow the white ninja some more where he hides in some tall grass and they light it on fire hoping to smoke him out. They all hide in nearby trees but the white ninja finds them and slashes open one's face and another's back with his sword before they can attack. So... (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Should we come back to this? Yeah. Well, because I... I was immediately like, oh, this is just a training exercise. And then he, but then he sliced <laughs> open a guy's like, face. Like, oh, yeah. This is not a training Definitely exercise. Definitely not. No Certainly way. Not. Another pair of red ninjas appear to get stabbed completely through their guts <laughs> and then dropped <laughs> to the floor. Once all four red ninjas are disposed of, the black ninja steps out and tosses two ninja stars into a tree, either as a warning or because he's just a terrible shot. He'll miss more <laughs> later, so I guess it's the latter. <laughs> The white and black ninjas face off again, and the white ninja starts firing arrows at black ninja, who catches them midair and then breaks them over his knee. Whitey is suddenly flanked by red ninjas again, and slashes one open with a sword and pins the other's arm to a tree with a knife before burying a shuriken in the man's forehead. Yeah. And doesn't what, doesn't he th- literally throw a sword straight through one of them? Yes. One of them gets <laughs> stabbed completely through the gut. 
White and Black have another sword fight at the base of a waterfall. At one point in the face-off, the White Ninja just starts booking it back into the trees again. <laughs> like, he just keeps running away, and I love it. I love the run that he does. Both men jump over the edge of a waterfall downstream, and we cut to some time later as the White Ninja swims under a bridge toward a temple. Uh, there was a incident with one of the Red Ninjas where they're like it's a, it's a it's a nunchuck fight yeah but he he slices through the chain and breaks the chain of the nunchucks yeah and my clever joke was he went from nunchucks to no chucks oh right are they no longer chucks if you split them apart well now you can chuck them both separately so now he's got two chucks <laughs> but he's two chuck chuck <laughs> when they jumped off the waterfall i was like well this is a terrible idea at first uh like i understand white ninja jumping off is like okay I would not follow a guy into water that I can't see. You know, like, yeah. like I would just be waiting under the surface of the water with the sword pointed up. <laughs> like, Go ahead, jump, jump in the in water, idiot. Come on down, boy. But then he gets to the shore, and the black ninja is still swimming in the water. It's like, just stab him in the water. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you waiting for him to swim? But he just doesn't care about this ninja, and he heads off to this temple. He takes out a small yard of red ninjas and finally trips up the black ninja feet from the front door of this building. For some reason, about 10 minutes into the movie, he gives the black ninja a choice at survival that he hasn't offered anyone else. Surrender or die. Surrender! He stabs a spear into the grass beside the black ninja's head. An old man stands on the porch outside the building, and the white ninja bows to him when he arrives before slicing the man's head off with a single swing. The white ninja moves inside and removes his hood to reveal Italian actor Franco Nero as Cole, looking like a sweaty, mustachioed Liev Schreiber. But, you know, he doesn't remove his shoes, and it was terribly distracting to me. Yeah. I'm like, you cannot, be in, you cannot be in there with your shoes on. And then, of course, we cut back to him like a second later, and he's not wearing shoes doesn't anymore. A crowd of red ninjas enter and sit all around him, and the black ninja takes a place beside the seat of honor. Several ninjas remove their hoods to reveal the injuries they have sustained, and what we will learn here was a graduation ceremony for their American ninja friend. So, not stabbed all the way through and in the face? I have to assume there's some empty seats here from their fallen brethren. <laughs> yeah. There's no way everybody made it out of that alive. I, I mean, like, okay, so we're about to see, though, that this head was fake. Right, yes. So are we saying... So those whole ninjas could be robots That or every time mm -hmm. he stabbed somebody through the face or through the gut, that they were also fake? What if those guys who got stabbed through the gut have been training every day, stabbing themselves a little bit until there was a <laughs> hole all the way through? Yeah, perfect hole. And he stabbed through that. There the organs go. have shifted. The skin is healed. There's just their perfect donut hole right through the middle. <laughs> this is my training ninjas. <laughs> <laughs> Stab them all you want. It's okay. <laughs> Finally, the decapitated Master Kamori enters the room fully intact with a wax replica of his own head in his hands. He sits at the front of the room and places the head on the floor beside his mat. He makes Cole recite the nine levels of power from memory, and he does. Rin. Strength. Of mind and body. Pure. Direction. Of energy. To. Harmony with the universe Sha. healing self and others kai premonition of danger jin knowing the thoughts of others retsu mastery of time and space zai 
controlling the elements of nature. Zen. Enlightenment. You have done well. You have passed every test. Now, do ninjas master time and space? <laughs> Absolutely. I knew the rest. That one surprised me. That they have time stones built in. Have you ever transcended space and time? Yes. No. Time, time not space. Not space. <laughs> no, I don't know what you're talking about. How am I not myself? How am I not myself? Master Kamori hands over a scroll confirming Cole's ninja certification. The men all enjoy a shot of what looks like Saki in the yard, except for black ninja Hasegawa, played by Shokashugi. He doesn't consider Cole to be a ninja on account of his caucasity. He has mastered ninjutsu! He is a ninja! He is no ninja! Hasegawa considers himself superior, coming from a long line of noble samurai. Later, Kamori and Cole go for a walk, and Cole explains that he's leaving for the Philippines to visit a friend. Kamori warns him to guard his new power of ninjutsu and blames Hasegawa's anger on a feeling of obsolescence in the modern world. Because it is the 20th century, in Japan, there is no samurai, no ninja. In a different time, Hasegawa would have been a great warrior. I understand. The master reminds Cole to use his strength to help the least fortunate, and we cut to Cole arriving at Manila Airport. A taxi drops him off at his friend's gate, and instead of getting their attention with a bell or something, he scales the wall with ease. At the porch, he is met by a blonde woman with a shotgun. She completely closes the gap between them and attempts to frisk the man while pointing a shotgun at his face, and then he swats it from her hands and starts frisking her fairly aggressively in the booble region before kicking her to the floor. I was certain this was going to be... A girlfriend of his or something? Yeah, it was yeah. like a... What was that other one? Um... Was it kill and kill again, or was it where he goes in and oh, the, yeah. the girl and attacks him because yeah. she doesn't know that who it is? That was Force 5. Force 5, there yeah. you go. But it's just like, nope, that's that, that groping you just did was uh, to a perfect stranger. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> his friend Frank Landers calls down from a balcony to introduce the woman as his wife, Marianne Landers. Inside, Frank prepares a drink, and Marianne seems bothered by Frank's early drinking. Do you have to have a drink? You just got up. I don't have to. I just choose to. Cole mentions that he doesn't like to drink, and Marianne hands him a glass of OJ. Well, but when, no, hold on a minute, though. He says, when the guy walks in, he's like, can I get you a drink? He's like, yeah, anything cold or wet. Like, this would be a great time to say, to also non-alcoholic. non-alcoholic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but wasn't he just drinking sake? Yes, he was at his graduation <laughs> ceremony. I, I got the impression that when he says he doesn't want alcohol, it's because he could tell it was bothering her. Oh, okay. Because she says, do you have to drink so early? And he's like, I don't have to. I just feel like it. <laughs> I, I thought it was more that uh, he's kind of like on the job. Oh, maybe. Like, but he's not yet. Like he hasn't been hired for any specific yeah, purpose. Yeah, but he's he's keeping his guard up. Yeah, maybe. So he can beat up more women and grab their boobs. Over dinner that evening, he is again offered alcohol by Marianne, and this time he accepts it. <laughs> so right. I guess he's just drinking yeah. whatever. It's good for the digestion. All right. Frank asks Cole what he's been up to in Japan, and Marianne offers a guess. Studying geisha girls, huh? Studying kung fu, more likely. Kung fu, my ass. I know him. I'm sorry I hurt you. And that wasn't kung fu. Well, whatever it was, maybe you should give Marianne a few lessons. Maybe he should. Especially considering where the rest of this subplot goes, I believe this comment 
comes from the original Mike Stone draft of the script and is a direct reference to the fact that Stone was a physical trainer for Elvis Presley until Elvis recommended he train Priscilla as well and Priscilla eventually cheated on Elvis with Stone. Whoops. For a time, Elvis even pursued hiring an assassin to kill the martial arts expert, but was talked out of it by friends. Oh, Jesus. Cole and Frank take a walk later, and Frank explains that some local businessmen are trying to steal this land from him. But they're not. <laughs> they're offering him a fair market value for yeah. it. A more than fair market value I was going to say over market value. They've offered to buy the property at a huge profit, but Frank turned them down because Marianne likes it here. Okay, then don't sell it. <laughs> That's the problem. They won't take no for an answer. Then sell. <laughs> You're good. Frank leads Cole to an on-site shelter for the people who work this coconut plantation. They pretend to be excited to see their boss and offer to arrange a cockfight to welcome his guest. Frank slips them some cash to get it started. They set some chickens to fighting and we hard cut to maybe my favorite shot of the film. Frank O'Nero practicing with nunchucks and looking less proficient than I did with my toilet paper roll nunchucks at the end of my Ninja Turtle themed 8th birthday party. <laughs> we should point out that on top of not doing his own stunts or saying his own lines, Nero also has zero weapons training, so he's really just paid to mouth English words and stare seductively into camera. But as soon as anything is actually happening in the plot, he gets to leave set. <laughs> Marianne drives by the practice session and invites Cole with her for a drive to town. Okay. Okay. He <laughs> just says the dumbest okay. Yeah. And why? Yeah, I guess I'll go. I don't want to hurt myself with these nunchucks. <laughs> when they get there, she just kicks him out and tells him to wander around until she comes back in a half an hour. It's like, why did you bring me? I thought this was going to be like, you're going to teach me where things are. I'm going to be in town for a minute. Well, and also because she says, I need to pay the workers. It's like, oh, she needs some like payroll protection. Right. It was like, I'll pick you up in an hour. It's like, you're just going to walk around by yourself with a bunch of money? Yep. That's the plan. By sheer coincidence, Cole wanders over to the local porn vendor, an old man named Dollars. His coat is literally lined with porn he's cut out of magazines on one side, and to cover every demographic, the other side has a bunch of crucifixes pinned inside it. Cole is distracted from the man's pitch by the sight of a one-armed man harassing another local vendor for not paying protection money. Well, he's a one-handed man. Sure. I do, I do like that the local panhandler guy is is also white here. In this right, stuff. yeah. Every character that we that we need to care about <laughs> Every is just by coincidence to, yeah, white. Talk, basically. <laughs> it could be like a sorcerer situation, where it's just like all these people are just in hiding. Yeah. Like for, they can't go back to their respective countries, so they're all just hiding out in the Philippines. <laughs> what the hell's that about? I told you to give me the honey. Ow! I usually charge for information, but this one's on the house. He's called the hook I don't know what I for obvious you. reasons. When he had both of his hands, he was a real son of a bitch. Now he's a lot worse. The actor playing Hook is a Golan Globus regular, but he looks like a budget Severn Darden to me. Yeah. Or, or like, I feel like he's supposed to be like a Peter Lorre type. Yeah, exactly. Hook and his henchmen sweep a bunch of merch to the floor on their way out to warn against future late payments. When Cole and Marianne get back to the plantation, a group of goons are attacking Frank's staff. Cole leaps into action knocking one of them out and brutally killing the other two. The leader of the workers, Pee-wee, announces that they cannot be expected to endure these attacks and must leave the plantation. But also pay us our money for right. the day. Marianne is surprisingly understanding and even gives them all their owed pay immediately. Later, Marianne and the three remaining workers operate the plantation alone when Cole offers his assistance. Marianne explains this plantation is two centuries old and their workers had staffed it for generations until today. Cole is annoyed that Frank has drunk himself unconscious in a nearby hammock and isn't helping. 
Marianne says he's been like that for as long as the town has been corrupt, but she refuses to give up on it. Frank and Cole jog down to Dollar's shop the next morning, and he tells Frank, for a price, that his wife is recruiting more workers at a nearby bar. I feel like you could have saved this money by just looking around for a minute. Yeah. Hook is here to intimidate people away from working by tapping his hook against a glass. The workers get the message and start to shuffle out of the room. Cole splashes Hook's drink in his face and pretends it was an accident, and Hook sixes bodyguards on the man. Cole takes out the man handily and then slaps the shit out of Hook for a while before grabbing the man by his wrist and stabbing his hook high into a wooden column, leaving the baddie dangling by his own arm as he tries to loosen himself. I, I have questions that will probably come back later about this hook, but it seems like it's attached. Yep. Yeah. In some way, it is very <laughs> Because he's literally attached. dangling from it, whereas yeah. I feel like if it were normal prosthetic uh limb it, would, it, it should just slip off just like slide it right off yeah maybe unlatch it hang around i'll be back hook heads into the city to report to his boss mr venarius mr venarius's office features a full-length swimming pool full of beautiful women and <laughs> tiny desks mashed into the negligible floor space between either side of the pool i i can't every time they said venarius i just kept thinking of venereal yep it's impossible <laughs> not to do i feel like working in a suit with paperwork in a moist environment like that, which is chlorine stench. Very uncomfortable. Yeah. The goddamn face. frog is dead. <laughs> the frog is half dead. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a man with an indoor pool in his office? An indoor pool in his office? I do not. I've mentioned him already in this episode. Mm. Is it the guy with the frogs? The mechanic. <laughs> oh. Do you remember he had that he had cool a pool, pool in his office? Yeah. I don't remember that. Yeah, he had a pool like in his living room where his office was. It was just an open concept. Right. Very <laughs> open. Like literally, if you walked out onto the patio, there was no wall and it was open to the sky on the outside. We learn here that Hook's actual name is Mr. Siegfried and that Venarius wants to buy the plantation because it's sitting on an oil deposit. Siegfried is repeatedly reminded to answer questions through Venarius's assistant, Mr. Parker, and every time he forgets, which is every time he speaks, he is slapped into submission. Uh, you see, Mr. Vanellius... I told you not to speak to him! Siegfried explains that the problem is a friend of Frank Landers. His men were thwarted by this stranger, and he'll need more men to take care of the problem. Venarius gets louder and angrier every time Hook offers an excuse. We must have Landers' property! I want it! What will it take to get it? They carpool to the docks where Venarius picks ten men from a pool of volunteers. These don't seem like... The cream of the crop. You just yeah. went and grabbed like random day laborers and you're like, here's your new fighting squad. Yeah. Well, you don't want to pay top dollar. One of these men stands out as someone who will clearly be chosen. And when Venarius asks what the group thinks of Hook, the conspicuous man who will introduce himself as Preacher steps forward. He looks like a fat tub of lard to me. Venarius orders Preacher to kill Hook right here and now. But when he gets close, Hook stabs the man in the balls with his hook and the fight is over before it started. After this demonstration, the crowd of volunteers thins out, presumably to just the men with no ball sacks. <laughs> and since there are still twice as many as they need, they're asked to pair it off and fight, presumably to the death, yeah. <laughs> until there's only 10 left. We cut to a polo match where Venarius spots Frank and Cole together and orders a tail on Cole. Frank confides in Cole that he's not a fighter anymore. He's a drinker now. As he leaves to make a drink order, Cole has a flashback to a time Frank saved his life during the Angolan Civil War years earlier. The next morning... Without satisfying explanation, Pee-wee and the entire crew of the coconut plantation have returned to work. I guess because three bodyguards got punched earlier today and they're yeah. like, it's definitely safe to go back. And, and there's not a lot of coconut work on the island. I guess not. 
Frank has the perfect way to celebrate the return of his workers. Let's have a cockfight! Oh my god, he's so excited about cockfights. <laughs> He's like he's like a little kid. He's like running, going, "Yeah, by yeah. yeah, oh boy!" The birds are set loose to fight once again. But worth pointing out that they're just fighting with their feet and beaks. They're not fitted with blades or anything like that. So they're, much better. I mean, that's it's much more brutal that way. What they're doing here is just what chickens do when they hate each other. Yeah. Uh, but we never see any blood in these fights, and we and we don't watch it until one of the chickens literally dies, which yeah. is nice. But I do get the impression that these are like a metaphor for the ninja versus ninja fight. Like there's a group of uninvolved people who put all their money into one team and they're like, you guys fight each other as proxies of us. Right on cue, Hook and his new men show up to scare the workers away again. Hook says that the workers are disobeying a union, but Frank is a big time union buster and assures the goons that his indentured servants have no such union. Hook offers to form one to help them achieve better working conditions and pay, but Frank tells him to fuck off because he doesn't want these people organized. Hook tries to make an example of Pee-wee, and when Frank steps in to break it up, a human fight is quickly underway, next to the chicken fight. <laughs> Pee-wee is tied to the back of a car and dragged around the paddock until Cole can ride a horse alongside the vehicle and then hops into the back to knock out the driver. It's, this is such a dangerous shot, and it's actually Frank O'Nero on the horse getting really close to a moving vehicle. It was really bothering me that this horse mm -hmm. was going to get run over somehow. Frank enters and exits the fight quickly and sits bleeding from the mouth on the sidelines for the bulk of it. Cole takes everyone on alone again. When it's down to just Hook, Cole starts tearing off the prosthetic, but inexplicably, this hook was actually surgically attached to the bone. So when it comes off, there's bits of blood and muscle hanging from the stump. I prefer to believe that the hook was pretending to be one-handed for the clout it gave him, and Cole just tore off his hand inside yeah. this fake hook. <laughs> well, yeah, because, like, it should be pointed out that there was nothing, uh, th this hook wasn't like a mechanical hook. Like, it's right. not one of, like, the two-pronged ones that you can, like, open and close. So, no, like, it's literally a Captain Hook hook. Yeah, it's just a straight-up hook. So there's no reason that this would be, like, attached to the body in any yeah. way. <laughs> As Hook stumbles away, bleeding from the arm, Cole tosses the prosthetic to the ground after him. You forgot something. <laughs> We cut to a bunch of beautiful women in a pool practicing asynchronized swimming. <laughs> Venerius stands over the pool with a baton pretending to conduct their motions. Venerius asks Hook what he thinks of his work of art, and Hook doesn't even know what he's talking about because it's so not a work of art. What do you think of my work of art? Which one, Mr. Venerius? My living mobile. Which one? The one in the pool, you moron. Oh, it's, a, it's wonderful. It's a real masterpiece, Mr. Venarius. And apparently he's allowed to address Venarius directly now. Venarius is disappointed to learn that the same man as last time has defeated all ten of the men he hired at the docks. Venarius considers hiring Cole to switch sides, but Hook doesn't think that's an option. Hook is dismissed from his position, and of course, in any other movie, this would be the scene where Hook is killed on his way out of the building for his multiple failures. But no, he's just been fired for cause, <laughs> yeah. and there's no further penalty involved. He's even happy to go. Thank you, Mr. Venarius. Thank you. Venarius now recruits his right-hand man, Mr. Parker, to address the problem. Back at the plantation, Dollars delivers a letter to Frank inviting him to another meeting about his land, and despite presuming it's a trap, Cole suggests he go anyway. Marianne only agrees when Cole promises to keep him safe. There's a car waiting outside with a driver who looks suspiciously like Cole. He's about Cole's size with a similar mustache, so Cole chokes an address out of him before tossing him to the ground and taking his hat to drive Frank himself. 
As Frank is admitted to the meeting location, Cole and Frank beat up the guards before heading inside separately. Cole tells Frank to drag things out as long as he can, and gets to work discreetly killing guards all over the location. We learn here that Frank is being offered high seven figures for his shitty coconut plantation in the Philippines, which in 1981 could probably buy you a whole private island. But he's holding out because his wife likes this one building in particular and hates the town and yeah. everything it stands for right now. When Frank again refuses, Mr. Parker blows a whistle to call his guards out. Six gunmen appear where he expected 20, and it turns out Cole has already taken out 14 of them. Cole walks out of the shadows carrying the guns of all the dead guards and drops them in a pile at Parker's feet. Gentlemen, I believe these belong to you. Some of the guards take aim at Cole, and Dollars appears on a high walkway with a rifle on them, and he tells them to drop their guns. Because Cole doesn't like guns. Right. Except for the one gun that you have that you have to use to keep the other guys with guns from using their guns because mm -hmm. he didn't actually take out all the guns. But for some reason, six guys with fully automatic weapons aren't able to shoot one guy with one weapon yep. up on the hill. But like the fact that he let the one guy use the guns, I mean, sort of defeats the we don't use guns thing. Yeah. But then all six guards put their guns down instead of just shooting dollars here. They spring into some hand-to-hand -hand combat, and of course Cole makes quick work of them again. Instead of rushing home to check on the wife that Frank left unattended, Cole and Frank head to a bar to get drunk. Frank gives a bizarre speech about how he can't get it up for Marianne anymore, but he thinks she deserves a good dicking down. Yeah, I was like, he's like, I can't get it up for a lady. For any lady? Like, is like, is are you are you confessing something here? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if, if he's as interested in Cole as she is, but it seems like the point here is, I feel guilty that I'm not pleasing her. You're around. Would you <laughs> mind doing me a favor? Is he is he asking that? Yes. Okay. That night, Frank sends Marianne to Cole's room, and they lock eyes as she walks in wearing a negligee, and then climbs into bed, and Cole turns out the light. So Cole goes along with this, but I feel like, I mean... I think seems... he asked as explicitly as he was comfortable doing. But, like, Cole seems really uncomfortable with this whole situation. It's awkward. I mean, it's an awkward arrangement. I guess I just don't feel like if I were Cole, I would have been like, yep, let's do this. It's his best friend. Yeah. You're not going to fuck your best friend's wife if he asks you to? <laughs> Over breakfast the next day, Frank seems ecstatic to have rid himself of the guilt of not servicing his wife by offering his best friend instead. Cole and Marianne still feel weird about the arrangement, and she's annoyed to hear him blathering on. What's the matter with you, Marianne? Didn't you get enough sack time last night, huh? <laughs> we cut back to Venerius's office, where Mr. Parker reports that Cole has now taken out 20 men. Mr. Parker proposes that to defeat a ninja may require the services of another ninja. A what? Someone who has studied ninjutsu. I made some notes. Ninjutsu, the ancient Japanese art of assassination. The ninjas were the private killers for the ancient Japanese clans. That's preposterous. This is 20th century Manila, not feudal Japan. Venerius follows up dismissing the plan as preposterous by demanding a ninja immediately. Well, I want a ninja. Find me a ninja who believes in the old ways, Mr. Parker. I'll have to go to Japan, sir. Then why are you still here? So he goes to Japan and goes to... Right. A casting agent? Yeah. yeah. There you go. <laughs> Now, if you were looking to hire a ninja, <laughs> where would you go? Martial arts tournaments, famous dojos. Mr. Parker's like, no, 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 no. I'm going to fucking Central Casting Tokyo branch. <laughs> yep. And he meets with a talent agent looking for a ninja. 
Understandably, the agent assumes Parker is looking for someone to play a ninja, even though only two ninja movies have been made thus far. <laughs> Did you guys notice the poster in the background for a title we've covered? I oh, didn't. No. The Changeling. Oh. There's a Changeling poster on the wall. Did he cast that one too? I guess. <laughs> he got all the ninjas for that we movie. He cast that one straight out of Japan. <laughs> The agent echoes Chuck Norris's comment in our last season by explaining that ninjas have been extinct for hundreds of years and instead offers a publicity still from a movie called Men and War, a.k.a. The Battle of Manchuria. When Parker refuses again, the agent promises not to disappoint him, and we cut to the temple from the start of the film, and Master Kamori speaks to camera. He asks Mr. Parker if he's sure he needs a ninja for a good cause, and he claims that his employer has been unfairly under attack. Sho Kashugi as Hasegawa is invited out for a weapons demonstration, and no second applicant is necessary. Parker approves the man right away. Back in the Philippines, Cole clocks a tail following him in town and books at full speed to lose the man, eventually hiding around a corner to catch him in a headlock and demand to know who sent him, even though you know who sent him. There's only one villain of this piece so far. He asks the man to deliver a message to his boss Venarius that he doesn't like being followed. Just as Cole turns to leave, the man whips out a gun, and Cole rewards his insolence with a throat punch. Never mind. I'll tell him myself. He finds Venarius' building, and we cut to Hasegawa arriving in the Philippines and being escorted to Venarius Enterprises. Cole's plan for infiltrating the building after hours is simple but effective. Dollars walks up offering to sell the guards porn, and they buy it hook, line, and sinker. This is why the first rule of personal security is always provide free porn to your henchmen. <laughs> Cole slips through the freshly unattended doors of the building and then just beats the same guards to death, which he could presumably <laughs> have done without Dollar's help. <laughs> they dress as the guards and move around the building and leave two naked guards in the elevator to make sure they're caught as soon as possible. <laughs> they find the pool office and Dollar's is very impressed by it. Cole quickly locates a geological report sitting out in the open that says the plantation is sitting on a huge oil deposit and he finally understands the trouble they've been going to. Dollars finds a projector and assumes it's already loaded with porn and turns it on. They got blue movies here. Ooh, I hope this is one I haven't seen. As the footage plays out, we see a ninja pursuing a target and Dollars provides a shot-by-shot -shot commentary. Look at that guy with the bow and arrow. What's he up to? I really wanted a reverse angle here where Cole notices that Dollars' pants are around his ankles and he's already <laughs> jerking it because he didn't know what the movie was yet. Oh my god. So presumably, though, this movie is like footage <laughs> like to like you know show this guy in action. Yeah, I think, I mean... It includes all these creative shots well, and like they're expertly say. edited together. Like, why is this multi-cam? This would have taken multiple takes. Like this is not an actual live shot but of we're supposed to read it as documentary footage of his yeah. skills. Like this is <laughs> this is Hasegawa's demo reel, but it serves the dual purpose of being a snuff film because the ninja on screen catches up with his target and swords him to death. Well, I mean, this is why that they have the casting agent. Like he's like, yeah, I exactly. Put together, he's I put like, this, this sorry, this is the only way I know how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like he killed like six extras just to get these six different angles cole recognizes the ninja as his longtime rival just who in the hell is that character someone i went to school with in japan <laughs> it's like someone i went to school with. <laughs> oh it's my classmate oh yeah back at the plantation frank and mary ann are enjoying a quiet dinner when hasagawa arrives and fucks it all up he sneaks up on a guard with a bunch of spikes strapped to his palm and then stabs the guard's forehead with it. Like, just blood crushing down his face. While Frank and Marianne talk about how they've grown apart, we see Hasegawa move through the background, killing all the visible guards. I actually really <laughs> like this shot. 
Yeah. I thought for sure he's got to be in her eyeliner. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> I thought for sure she she saw what was happening, but no, it's just. Or maybe she just hated that one guard, and she's like, "I don't let him kill this guy. I'll bring it up later." It, it's like something out of the Naked Gun. While like yeah, it really R- is, Ricardo Montalban's on the phone while Drebin is trying to pull the dead fish out of the, <laughs> the background and put it back in the tank. Perfect. Frank admits he doesn't know what he's doing with his life, and suddenly the lamp between them on the table explodes, and Frank calls for his guards. Marianne grabs a shotgun off the wall against Frank's protestations. When the guards don't respond to Frank's cries, she just wanders out into the yard, ignoring Frank calling for her, to the point that I was almost certain she was working for Venerius. <laughs> she's just <laughs> ignoring everything he does and not following his instructions. She's quickly taken captive by Hasegawa and tied to a tree. Frank finds her shotgun on the ground, but before he can get to her, Hasegawa finds him and starts slicing him up real good. Frank runs to Marianne to untie her, and Hasegawa throws another shuriken and misses again. This time we even get a quick little, damn it, insert. So I was sure that it was clearly a mistake this time, but a second shuriken stabs Frank in the back of the leg. He collapses, and then Hasegawa slashes open Frank's throat in front of her. Venerius arrives at his building after hours and is immediately annoyed to find his stronghold unguarded. But both elevator bays are full of guard corpses. <laughs> and we, every time we see the exterior of this building, the elevators are going up and down because they yeah, wanted yeah. to show us that those are elevator shafts. So they must be going up and down full of dead guards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's pushing the buttons? <laughs> I don't know. One of these guys is faking it just so we can get out of this job. <laughs> Venerius suggests putting Hasegawa to work, but Parker has already ordered the attack. The shelter at the coconut plantation is fully engulfed in flames and the workers run for their lives. And Hasegawa's just running around with two torches screaming maniacally. He's just like, ah! Stabbing and it into the walls and setting like, everything on fire. He's got to know he's the bad guy at this point, right? No, like, no, Does no. he not care? I mean, Yeah, I don't think he cares. I don't I, think any good guy sets a village on fire. I think as soon as he found out that it was cold that was here, he was like, oh, fuck yeah. I was excited about being hired as a ninja at all. You tell me that I get to kill the white ninja? Yes, please. Thank you. I guess it's like a, it must be like, even though it seems like the the teacher of this school is like, you know, you have to be honorable and take take good, do do good and be take good missions. I think Hazagawa is just like, no, I take the mission. I don't ask questions. You right. hired me for a job. I will do yeah, the he, job. He thinks yeah. of it more as a mercenary thing. but which it, Which it is. Yeah, but I also feel like Kimori should be vetting these people more if he's just like, no, come on. Who are you? Like, what is your business? And and l- let me get mm. some references here. No, it's just like, a, you're good, right? Yeah, I'm good. All right, cool. Take this ninja. Take this <laughs> super deadly ninja that I trained to kill everything. There's more background checks for rental cars yeah. than there are for ninjas. <laughs> I hope he's at least paying the $6 insurance deposit. Oh, that. don't do that. Your car insurance should cover it. Oh, okay. My credit card covers accidental ninja death. <laughs> <laughs> I need to check my uh, policy now. <laughs> Cole finally returns to Frank's home to find him dead in a pool and Marianne kidnapped. He flashes back to their battles in Angola and the day the war ended, which it actually didn't do until 2002. <laughs> so when Frank says, The war is over. The goddamn war is over. He means for us. What are you going to do now? I'm going to find myself a good woman and live to be 100. This is known as dramatic irony, since we, the audience, know he will not make it to 100. What about you? I don't know. Find another war, I guess. Cole is sobbing now and finds the shelter out back still smoldering. He makes all the hand motions from his graduation ceremony and redresses into white ninja mode to avenge his friends. As he walks through the building of Venerius Enterprises, his white ninja costume is blending in for the first time with the marble walls of the lobby. (laughs) 
He takes out every guard he encounters and then rides in an elevator to the top floor. Various low-level employees get darts and shurikens to the chest until he finds the pool room and it empties faster than the pool in Caddyshack last season. Another white henchman pulls a gun on Cole and after he smacks it into the pool, Cole stabs the man in the chest and tosses him into the water just as Mr. Parker walks out. Pity he wasn't Japanese. He might have enjoyed his harakiri then. I don't think anyone is supposed to enjoy harakiri. Parker then says, this is awkward, but you didn't have to kill anybody. We've been waiting to talk to you all day. <laughs> like, we knew you were coming. This would have been fine. It, it, it felt like uh, like in Monty Python and the Holy Grail when he, like, comes and attacks the whole wedding and just kills everyone. <laughs> yeah, oh. yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> he escorts Cole in his ninja outfit to a giant cockfighting arena. Do you guys recall the last time we saw this exact location used for yes. a film's climactic battle? Was it Firecracker? It was Firecracker. It looked very familiar. This is the Valenzuela Cockpit Arena in Metro Manila, the Philippines, which we last saw in Firecracker. Also shot in the Philippines. I wrote that down. It. I wrote a note. I'm like, this looks like Firecracker. <laughs> I took notes. Ninjas on ninjas. Venarius demands to see him, and when Parker goes to retrieve the ninja from his car, Venarius starts sucking on his thumb to complete the infantile image they will continue to present for the rest of the film. Of course, Cole didn't just wait in the car, and all the guards <laughs> here are dead in the garage. Venarius suspects that Cole is hiding somewhere in the room and pleads with the invisible ninja to engage in a conversation while the guards continue to be killed one at a time, or sometimes two at a time, with size <laughs> to the gut. One guy gets a face full of tiny razor-sharp shurikens. Well, they're, like they're, Killer Jacks, man. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're, they're caltrops, and that's not what you use caltrops for. He just, like, throws them over his shoulder in yeah. the guy's face. <laughs> but he just keeps them in his pocket and runs around like that? Do you remember the last time somebody died of a lot of little tiny metal things thrown to the face? Oh, shit. Student bodies? Yeah. Staples, right? Paper clips, I think. Oh, paper it? clips. You're right, yeah. Cole then blows four poison darts into the chest of another shocked guard who finally goes down after the fourth one. It's like, dude, fucking move. <laughs> or is there blowfish darts and you're yeah. frozen in place? When he fired the third dart, I was like, three darts is too many. <laughs> <laughs> I like you, but you're crazy. Another guy gets an arrow to the ribs. One gets a katana to the back. And all the while, Venarius calls to Cole in the smoky room, begging him to just sit down and talk things out. As far as I know, though, this is just another graduation ceremony. <laughs> he's just getting his ninja doctorate, and these are all <laughs> good guys. They're all going to come back later. Ninja! I told you I was ready to talk! Venarius is down to basically Mr. Parker and still doesn't seem worried enough. Mr. Parker! I want my black ninja, and I want him now! All right, Mr. Wonka, how much for the black ninja? <laughs> They're not for sale. Name me promise. <laughs> There was multiple times that I thought of Willy Wonka in this movie. So there was like that. And then the, I think he was telling his secretary earlier to like fill out a contract offer. And he's like, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Parker comes out with Marianne gagged at gunpoint. When he threatens to kill her, if Cole doesn't reveal himself, Cole puts an arrow through his gun hand and then he lets her go because what choice does he have? Don't let her go. I think I've been hurt, sir. Parker's just like gushing blood out of his arm yeah. with a giant arrow through his fist. Marianne tries to run away and is captured downstairs by Hasegawa. After an eruption of flash powder, Cole has a knife to Parker's neck, and when Venarius admits that he doesn't care about his assistant and even shoots him, Cole lets go of the man and Parker collapses to the floor. But sir... <laughs> Venarius tries one last time to hire Cole and he explains that Frank wasn't his boss, but his friend and he whips another massive shuriken into the man's heart. Venarius drops his gun, and with his last ounce of strength, lifts his arms into frame for a sort of, 
what the fuck was that for gesture that reminded me vividly of Susan Tyrell's death scene in Forbidden Zone as she's shot by Frenchie's mom. Because she gets shot and she just goes like, <laughs> and then falls over dead. Like, I'm so confused by what just happened. Yeah, this is great. Cole calls out to Marianne and realizes that she is in Hasegawa's custody in the ring at the center of the arena. The woman is released and the ninjas prepare to face off. Go home. What about you? I'll see you later. I hope. The opponents bow to each other and then the fight begins. Marianne stays to watch. Early in the fight, Cole tosses powder in Hasegawa's face, which seems like cheating in a fair fight, but maybe that's allowed? They both draw blood and Cole catches the blade of Hasegawa's spear between his palms. He flips the man over his head and then buries Hasegawa's own spear in his own chest. Hasegawa congratulates Cole for an honorable victory and demands an honorable death, and seems to even request decapitation by asking him to cut the neck. Cut the neck. Cole bows and then obliges. He tosses his sword on the ground and meanders out of the ring. Back at the plantation, Cole is leaving, but Marianne will stay to work. Cole promises to return, but Franco Nero did not have any future installments. Like, it has nothing to do with the fact that I'm sitting on a gold mine of oil now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> At the airport... Now I'm the black ninja. <laughs> At the airport, Dollars asks who Cole will kill next, but seems to stumble over the line. So, who are you going to kill next, Mr. Ninja? My dear friend, a true ninja doesn't kill. He eliminates and only for defensive purposes. Suddenly, the hook wanders up to help him with his bags. Are you looking for a partock, mister? But there are exceptions. Cole walks right up to the camera and winks at us, the audience, for a gong sound, and the film has ended. Fade to black for credits. So he's gonna go kill the hook? Even though he was just a low-level employee who quit the job and went and found yeah. employment helping people with their luggage. Weird choices. Gotta it's kill like, the guy. I definitely have a code of honor, but I'll throw that out the window right now. Yeah, there's always exceptions. I didn't know where to fit this joke in, so um, maybe I should have said it, the scene where he has sex with Frank's wife. But uh, <laughs> uh, I'm already laughing. Like, if that's where you wanted to put the joke. Something like that, where, uh, where he would be like, is your husband around or something like that? And then she could say, you know what they say, keep your Frank near and your Franco Nero. <laughs> Okay. Uh, you get it? Yeah. I don't know if it makes any sense at all. Probably not. Anyway, that was uh, Enter the Ninja. The second film, Shokashugi is like a ninja that his entire family is killed in Japan, except for his youngest baby, who his wife hides in, in like some plants before everyone else gets killed. So he finds the baby and he moves to America to start a business with his business partner from Japan, um, who is an American guy. And he says, we got to get you out of here. It's too dangerous for you here now. So he brings Shokashugi, his son, played by his own actual son, and his mother. And he says, we're all moving to America. And before they leave, his mom says, I don't trust your American business partner guy. And it turns out he's a shitty, evil monster. And he arranged for the whole family to get killed. But then in the future, we jump forward a number of years in America. And he has to fight all these people to protect his family in America. Then the third film which again, Shokashugi comes back as another new character. And the third film is about like an aerobics instructor who becomes possessed by a dead ninja. And they call in James Hong, who's like an exorcist. And he's trying to get this ninja spirit out of this girl who keeps killing people against her own will. That sounds awesome. It's fucking great. <laughs> it's like 
<laughs> if you ask anyone the order of these movies, they will tell you the first one's okay, the second one's the best one, and the third one is the worst one. They are all wrong. The third one is by far the best, craziest, most interesting, fun-to-watch movie. And I would say that this one that we just covered yeah. is much more fun than the second one where it's like, other than Shokushugi, I didn't know anybody else. And the action's not that fun. And and I don't really care about any of the characters in the second one. But the third one is fucking great. And well, I can't wait I to wanna, show it to you guys. Now I want to watch it. Because I, I thoroughly enjoyed this one. It was amusing the entire way through. So the second movie is in 83. <laughs> the third one is in 84. Right away again. So we'll get two sequels two years in a row. Which for us will be like, like within six or seven now. years. <laughs> yeah i'll forget i'll have watched this one. i'll forget i watched this one like next week i'll though. make you rewatch it <laughs> but anyway uh so that's the ninja series and You'd... then they came back with the american ninja series after that series had closed yeah you didn't mention it all this entire time it had amazing music the like yeah the music everything every time the music popped in i'm like this is so great <laughs> but yeah this is definitely i think this is a thumbs up for me and i i honestly even though He's a terrible actor and he's not doing any of his own work here. I think Franco Nero makes it for me. Like, he just has such an interesting face and I love seeing all of his weird stares and, like, glares into camera. It's for sure a thumbs up, but it's it's a thumbs up in that, like, it's it's a stupid fun movie. Yeah. Like, it's not, it's not like it's a good, good movie. It's just dumb constantly and I'm like, this is great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Well... I didn't really enjoy this movie at all. <laughs> thumbs up, though, right? No, it's not a thumbs what? up. It's a thumbs down. I, I it, it was. I get how it could be entertaining, but maybe I just wasn't in the mood when I was watching it. But I was just not interested in this movie at all. I think you will like the third one a lot. Uh, but but yeah, but I I really don't have anything to say. Like it, it it's it's goofy and it's probably worth a watch, but uh. This isn't even like the kind of movie like those. Oh my gosh, you have to watch this terrible movie. Yeah, like, it's not like Duel to the Death either, where it's like completely ridiculous action set pieces, where you're like, "Holy shit, no, is that not, what they're implying it's just not happened?" That mm-hmm. over the top, but it's in that vein. Yeah, no, it's it's on the path to that. And uh, the, the second movie borrows a kill that we saw in Shogun Assassin, where someone gets stabbed through a wall and then b- blood just starts coming out of the wall, and the person falls and cuts open the paper panel of the okay, wall yeah, yeah. um but yeah there's a lot of stuff that i recognized in the second film from earlier ninja movies but yeah um that's enter the ninja uh where's this going on your letterboxes oh, i was gonna also mention that the entire time i couldn't help but feel like venerius was dubbed by willem dafoe <laughs> yeah <laughs> i thought it's you know, like he him. definitely does sound like him a little bit back to formula the frog is half dead <laughs> <laughs> well, I I think this was I, I I liked it. It's still a middle of the road movie because it's not like it's fantastic, uh, but it's not horrible. So I have it at sixty two out of one thirty five. Okay. It is. Is it one thirty five or one thirty four? One thirty five. Okay. I haven't added the other one yet. Okay, cool. Uh, it is below Gallipoli, but above Fort Apache, the Bronx. All right. Richard, what do you got? Uh, I have it at 111, uh, which puts it below the Bushido Blade, but above Cheech Chong's Nice Dreams. Really? Below the Bushido Blade? Yeah. I'd much <laughs> rather watch the Bushido no, Blade. No, you what? wouldn't. That was a made-for-TV this, movie. It was this garbage. This was at least, like, ridiculous. Bushido Blade was, like, just boring. This movie was boring. You're boring. <laughs> oh. Let's not say anything we can't take back. I can't edit this one. I told you guys that, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, my computer's broken. Uh, Firecracker is right above this. This is at 104 of 135, so it's just below Firecracker and just above the Unseen. And Firecracker, I think, had a little bit better fighting scenes. But that that's the other problem, is that because they keep having to hide who the actor is, the, the choreography suffers a lot uh, in the film. And so there's not really a lot of cool fighting because one of the main characters is such a terrible fighter that they can't even fake stuff really well. But, I mean, you have... Shokashugi and Mike Stone because Mike Stone is doubling for Franco Nero for the last fight you would think it would be better but there's really not a lot to it they're just kind of flipping around each other and the fight's over in under two minutes probably yeah our director here was Menachem Golan Golan is the cousin of Yoram Globus and at the start of the 80s they bought Canon Films and built it into a B-movie powerhouse he and his cousin are the subject of two recent and unmissable documentaries Electric Boogaloo and The Go-Go Boys that tell the story of their exploits as the heads of Canon Films. Last season, he directed The Apple, and later he helms Delta Force and Mac the Knife. Other than The Apple, we've covered seven other Golan Globus-produced titles from 1980, including The Godsend, Happy Hooker Goes Hollywood, Schizoid, Seed of Innocence, Dr. Heckle and Mr. Hype, and New Year's Evil. We also covered Hot T-Shirts with a Minisode, which is a canon film but somehow doesn't include a producer credit for Golan. I'm not sure why. Golan and Globus will have exponentially more and more releases as we move through the decade. The writer and screen story came from Dick Desmond, who this is his only credit and it might even be a fake name for someone who just didn't want credit on this. The story came from Mike Stone. This was his first writing credit. He has mostly stunt work before and later he gets a screenwriting credit on The Ninja Legacy and Tiger Shark. He also serves as a martial arts choreographer on the American Ninja film series. Uncredited writing from Stephen K. Hayes. This was also his only writing credit. He claims he was too embarrassed to take a credit on the film. He also served as the uncredited stunt double for John Rice Davies in TV movie Shogun. The music here was from W. Michael Lewis. So far we've heard music he composed in Shogun Assassin, New Year's Evil, and Blood Beach, in which he actually plays a musician in one of the club scenes. Other music came from Lauren Rinder, who also composed on New Year's Evil and appears as a musician in the Blood Beach Club. Cinematographer was David Gerfinkel, who was the DP on The Apple and came back for Revenge of the Ninja, Over the Top, Rambo 3, and TMNT 3. The editor here was Michael J. Duthie, who previously cut Rough Cut. He's back later for Sahara, Bloodsport, American Ninja, and Delta Force sequels, Stargate, Stigmata, 3K MTG, and more recently The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. The other editor was Mark Goldblatt, who previously cut Piranha and Humanoids from the Deep and The Howling. He's back later this season for Halloween 2, and then Terminator, First Blood Part 2, Commando, Jumpin' Jack Flash, Predator 2, Last Boy Scout, Super Mario Brothers, True Lies, Showgirls, Starship Troopers, Armageddon, Detroit Rock City, Pearl Harbor, Bad Boys 2, X-Men The Last Stand, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Chappie, and most recently the Eli Roth Death Wish. Franco Nero played Cole. He was Amerigo Vesepi in Django Unchained, as a reference to his appearance in the lead of the original Django film. D-J-A-N-G-O. The D is silent. I know. He's also Lancelot in Camelot, where he met his future wife, Vanessa Redgrave. He's Esperanza in Die Hard 2. He's in Cars 2. And he's Julius in John Wick Chapter 2. I think he's in charge of the Italian hotel yeah he's the the concierge of the yeah and he also we've seen him so far as the jesus character at the beginning of the visitor who's teaching all the little bald kids the history of the galaxy and evil 
Susan George played Marianne. She was Amy in Straw Dogs. She's Mary in Dirty Mary Crazy Larry and Blanche Maxwell in Mandingo. She shows up next in Venom, The House Where Evil Dwells, and Kiss My Grits. She was also the wife of actor Simon McCorkendale, who we saw in our Cabo Blanco review. He was the British fellow who led the search party looking for the sunken ship in the bay. Shokashugi played Hasegawa. He's back as the lead actor for both sequels, Revenge of the Ninja and Ninja 3. I guess he's not the lead in Ninja 3. His son, Kane Kashugi, actually plays his son in the second film of the series, and later voiced Ryu in a Street Fighter series, and played Kazuya Mishima in Tekken 2, the live-action Tekken 2. More recently, Shokashugi shows up in James McTeague's Ninja Assassin in 2009. Christopher George played Venarius, no relation to this film's Susan George. We've seen him so far as the detective on the case in The Exterminator, and as the track coach slash shop teacher in Graduation Day. He was also recommended for that second gig by his wife Linda Day George after she worked with director Herb Freed on Beyond Evil, which we covered with a minisode. Christopher George returns for Grizzly, Mortuary, and later cult classic Pieces. Alex Courtney played Frank. I didn't recognize much else except that he looked a lot like Stephen Wright to me, kind of. Will Hare played Dollars. He's back later this season as Father Everson in Pennies from Heaven, and later he's the grandpa in Silent Night, Deadly Night, but he's likely best known for his appearance as Pa Peabody in Back to the Future, in whose barn the DeLorean makes its initial landfall on November 5th, 1955. He's also the face of the Chessmaster game series, which is Ubisoft's chess game, one of the most popular chess simulator games. Zaki Noy played Hook, or The Hook, He's a Golan Globus regular from their early days in Israel. He shows up in Lemon Popsicle and many of the sequels to Lemon Popsicle, and then Hot Bubblegum before this, Private Popsicle after this. Constantine Gregory played Mr. Parker. He's an aide to Mets in Diamonds Are Forever. He's a navigation officer in Voyage of the Damned. And more recently, he was a Russian general in Wonder Woman 1984. Dale Ishimoto played Kimori. He comes back as Okuda in Ninja 3 The Domination. Ken Metcalf played Elliot. He was Eric, the arena boss, in Firecracker, so there's people connections to Firecracker mm -hmm. also, obviously because they're probably local hires. Alan Emil played Maroon Ninja, so that wasn't red, it was Maroon, we were wrong. He comes back to play Red Ninja Leader in Revenge of the Ninja. Jack Turner played Maroon Ninja. He returns to play Stairway Gunman Number 1 in Revenge of the Ninja. Jim Gaines played Venarius's Man. He's credited as Gladiator in Firecracker earlier this season. Don Gordon Bell plays another Venarius man, who is also a gladiator and firecracker. And Robert Wall played a thug. Before this, he was O'Hara in Enter the Dragon. He's Bob in Way of the Dragon and Carl Muller in Game of Death. He continued collaborating with Chuck Norris through Code of Silence, Invasion USA, Firewalker, Sidekicks, and a recurring role on Walker, Texas Ranger. Those are all the credits I have for this one. I think that's everything for Enter the Ninja. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. What's that sound? We got that's right, it's longtime patron Carlos Moda. As a top-tier patron of the show, Carlos currently has access to 36 full-size 70s reviews and 42 minisodes from 1980 and a hand in choosing next month's film. For February of 1973, $5 patrons are choosing between the following nine titles. Black Caesar, Larry Cohen's exploitation crime drama about the rise and fall of a crime boss in Harlem starring Fred Williamson, Gloria Hendry, and Julius Harris with a score from James Brown. 
Charlotte's Web, Hanna-Barbera's animated adaptation of E.B. White's beloved children's book of the same name featuring the voices of Debbie Reynolds, Paul Lind, and Henry Gibson. Last Tango in Paris, Bernardo Bertolucci's erotic drama about a recently widowed American man and his anonymous affair with a French woman. It stars Marlon Brando and Maria Schneider. Lolly Madonna XXX, Richard C. Serafian's action film based on Sue Grafton's novel Lolly Madonna War, which tells the story of a Hatfields and McCoys-type family rivalry that escalates to torture and murder, starring Rod Steiger, Jeff Bridges, Gary Busey, and Scott Wilson. Save the Tiger, John G. Avildsen drama about a man sacrificing his morals to keep his fashion company afloat, starring Jack Lemmon, Jack Guilford, and Lori Heineman. The Train Robbers, Burt Kennedy Western about a widow hiring a man to locate gold her deceased husband stole with the intention of returning it and clearing her family name for the sake of her son. It stars John Wayne, Anne Margaret, and Rod Taylor. Turkish Delight, Paul Verhoeven's romantic drama based on Jan Volker's novel Turk's Fruit, 1973's Best Foreign Film Oscar winner about young lovers starring Rutger Hauer and Monique Vandeven. Pulp, the late Mike Hodges' crime comedy about a former actor who hires a pulp novelist to compose his autobiography. It stars Michael Caine, Mickey Rooney, and Lionel Stander. And finally, Walking Tall, Phil Carlson's action biopic on wrestler-turned-sheriff Buford Pusser, who single-handedly cleaned up his own town of McNair County, Tennessee. It stars Joe Don Baker and Elizabeth Hartman, and is technically the start of a trilogy of films, the first of which was remade in 2004 starring The Rock. Each of these celebrate their 50th anniversaries this coming February. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing paternity, which IMDb describes like so. A single man searches for a woman who will bear his baby with no strings attached. I mean, there's going to be one string. Yeah, like, there are a couple least, of strings. At least an umbilical cord. One string <laughs> attached. We leave you now with the trailer for paternity. Bert Reynolds has an unusual proposition. I want you to have my baby. I want you to be the mother of my son. But he doesn't want to get married. Me? You do a service. I pay you for it. It's a business transaction. Cut and dry. Do I have to live with you? The next thing you know, they're going to be asking me to take my pants down. Oh, not yet. I uh, think it's good to get these things out in the open. Bert Reynolds in Paternity. Rated PG.